0: So in our message today, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at pride. And specifically, I want to look at pride as it relates to our sanctification. And in looking at our our pride and our sanctification, what I want us to see is that they are indeed pride and sanctification. That is, They are naturally opposed to one another, and yet they are still unnaturally overlapping within our lives. They they don't belong together, and yet we often find them together in our our walk, in our sanctification. But before we get into that, I think that we need to start by asking ourselves, what is pride? Uh, And that is a a rather difficult question to answer. It's actually easier to recognize pride than it is to define pride. It's not a a simple thing to define. It's easier to recognize pride in somebody else than it is to recognize pride in our own lives, and our own selves, right? That is where the, the real difficulty comes in. But I've thrown together a, a couple of definitions, uh, a couple of synonyms for pride that people have thrown out there. Pride is arrogance or delusion of greatness on account of one's own achievements or abilities, stat, status, or possessions, um, it is an unwarranted attitude or confidence. And I think really at root, it is a a lack of dependence upon God and a refusal to submit to God. Pride is um, saying that we have no need for God. And it is often recognized as the root and the essence of sin. And just like with many other theological themes, I think we can, best define it by looking at what pride is not. Pride is the opposite of humility. And humility is the the proper attitude that we should have in relation to God, to this God who is above us, this God who is transcendent, this God who is in every way superior to us, realizing that we are inferior. That is humility. And pride is the opposite of that. Pride is uh, taking this position, which naturally, applies to God and, and flipping it on its head. It's a failure to recognize this proper position of God being over us and us being in submission to God. And so I want to start off by looking at um, the, the first time that that scripture actually speaks of pride, uh, chronologically that is. So I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 14, where we see uh, pride enter into the heart of, of Satan. So in Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 to 14, we got those on the screen? There it is. All right. And uh, it says here, "Speaking of Satan, have you how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have been weakened, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart. I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. What a statement of pride, right? Satan saying, I'm going to ascend to that position that is God's alone. I want that position, I want that power, that prestige for myself. Um, and this is the, the first time that we see pride. This is really the, the birth of pride as far as we're concerned. And we see this later displayed by Satan in the garden as he calls to, to Adam and to Eve. And he encourages them to uh, to take that same mentality, that same attitude upon themselves so that their eyes would be opened and that they would become like the Most High. Satan in his pride is encouraging others, namely adam and eve to take that pride upon themselves so that they too might become like the most high and i think it's very easy for us to look at these first two examples from scripture of pride and to see the blatant arrogance in them that they are uh, defying god to their face they are naming their sin saying that they want to be like the most high Um, and we can Project that upon Satan, upon Adam and Eve without realizing that that same attitude, that same pride is what is within our hearts today. That um, this arrogance against God has been maintained and um, this God-denying reality is at root within every act of sin, and every act of pride that you and I encounter in our own lives. That this pride that was in Adam was passed down to us it was passed down to to Cain and Abel remember and uh, Cain manifested that pride and that pride turned into jealousy and that jealousy turned into wrath and vengeance against his brother and uh, evolved into murder and he killed his own brother because of the pride that was within his own heart the pride and jealousy that passed down just beyond Cain and Abel, to every human heart that has ever walked on this earth, we have all been tainted by this reality of pride being within our hearts. And I like how, how John kind of sums up the sin that we see in our world, the sin that we know in our world. In 1 John 2.16, uh, John speaks of three different categories of sin. He says, for all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So those three different categories, the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. This is common to our world. Even our our non-Christian friends, people from the world, they can recognize these different categories of sin, that the, the lust of the flesh, that is... Um, a desire for sex, right? The lust of the eyes, a, a desire for money, or the pride of life, a desire for power and prestige, uh, a desire to to rule over people, have position over people. These are very common to the the human experience. It is common to the world. They're not from the father, but they are from the world. And so we can see that our pride comes not only from within us because of Adam and Adam's sin, which he passed on to us, which we inherited from him, but also from the world. And then again, as we look back to the the origination of this pride, we see also that it comes from, from Satan himself. And this is recognized again in the New Testament. Paul, as he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 6 and 7, he says that pride is the snare of the devil. And then again, in 2 Timothy 2, 26, he says that this Pride, which is a snare of the devil, has an ability to have a hold over us. So we, when we are battling against pride, we are in a battle, fighting this battle on three different fronts. We are fighting this battle internally with that Adam-inherited sin. We are fighting this battle in the world that we live in. And we are fighting this battle on a, a spiritual realm. Three different fronts that we find ourselves fighting this battle upon. And uh, while pride largely has a, a negative connotation, we recognize that, and for good reason, it has a negative connotation. We would also do well to to just mention that there are positive aspects of pride. That pride can be used in a positive sense, uh, a sense of accomplishment or of gratitude, a sense of appreciation over something that we've done over our, our work, what we accomplish at work, or some kind of creative project they were able to come up with, a, a pride over our children and how they act or behave, or even how God is working within their hearts. I think that's a good thing to be proud about. Uh, we have pride very often about our, our sports teams, right? When we're watching our sports team and they're doing well, we are, we're proud of them. But I think even in this positive aspect of pride, we have to recognize that ultimately this comes down to uh, a self-interest that we don't have that same sense of pride in somebody else's work or in somebody else's accomplishments and somebody else's children and we certainly don't have that same sense of pride in somebody else's sports team who is opposing our sports team and when they're doing well we we don't praise the the athletic ability that God has given them do we Uh, so even at root uh, when used positively I think that uh, pride, there is some level of self-interest or, or egotism within pride. Not necessarily sinful, but it's a, a self-glorifying, self-interested uh, reality. A couple of times we see, even in Scripture, Paul using pride in a, a positive sense. In 2 Corinthians 1.14, he says as he's writing to this church that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. He is proud of them, and he says it. You should be proud of us too, because we are working together. We have the same goal, the same accomplishment that we're trying to achieve. Or in 2 Thessalonians 1.14, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. Uh, Why is it that he speaks proudly of them? He says, For your perseverance and faith, in the midst of your persecution and afflictions which you endure. So, it is used in a, a positive sense even within Scripture. However, for the the vast majority of the, the Old Testament, nearly every time that pride is spoken of in the Old Testament, it is spoken of negatively. That was the, the mentality that the Jewish people had of pride, that pride is bad, we need to stay away from pride, we need to uh, put pride to death. And that kind of changed leading up to... Christ the 400 years leading up to Christ there was a lot of Greek influence in uh, the, the culture and pride was seen as uh, a virtue rather than vice very similar to how it is today that it is good to be proud and it is bad to be meek or humble that is seen uh, as a negative thing and that's exactly how it was in, in Greek culture leading up to this um, that it would be a, a sign of weakness that should be avoided And pride would oftentimes just be uh, written off as confidence and encouraged and uh, celebrated rather than looked at as something that we need to avoid. And then Jesus comes on the scene, right? Uh, Jesus, uh, who has no sinful pride in him whatsoever. And he says in one of my favorite passages in Matthew 11 that... um, those who are weary can come to him, that he will take our, our burdens upon himself, that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. And he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Learn from me. Gentle and lowly, and that we should learn from him. And so with that, let's look to sanctification, what it means to be sanctified um, in in the Greek, this word is translated from the the Greek word hagios. And that word is actually translated a few different ways into English words. It's translated as saints or as holy ones. um, And it it really just depends upon the the context, how it's translated. And so we see that there's a, a very close association with being holy that we should embrace when we're looking at this word sanctification, what it means to be sanctified. In the New Bible Dictionary, it defines sanctification. Um, it says that context alone is what determines whether the translation of Hagia should be holy, holiness, holy one, saints, consecration, or sanctification. Its broad meaning is the process by which one is brought into relationship with or attains the likeness of the holy. So, We can say that to be sanctified is to be made holy, to be made righteous, uh, to be acting saintly, right? We realize that anybody who is in Christ is a saint, but we don't always act like saints, right? Um, But to be sanctified is to be made holy, to be made like God himself is. God alone is holy in the ultimate sense of the word, and to be sanctified is to become more and more like he is. We see this in Romans 8.29, which says that we are to be conformed to the image of God. We are to be made like Him. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we see um, that we, like Moses, who reflected the glory of God, we are to be transformed into the same image of Him uh, from glory to glory that we are to reflect him to be transformed into his image to be made holy as he is holy which is exactly what peter says in first peter 1 15 and 16 that um, we should be holy even as he himself is holy this is the process of sanctification this is the goal and the the life of a christian to be sanctified to be made like christ now it's vitally important at this point that we make a distinction between justification and sanctification. We do this often because it is so vitally important. We realize that when we are justified, that is when we are saved, we are um, brought into the fold of God by his work and his work alone, that we have been uh, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, that he has taken all of our guilt and all of our sin, he has put it upon himself and by his power and his power alone he has made us right that is what justification it is it is to be declared righteous to be saved from our sin now sanctification is distinct from that sanctification is what takes place after where we reflect christ where we are to um to walk in the works of righteousness that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in ephesians 2:10 this is not at all a part of our justification, uh, but a part of our sanctification. And again, it is justification is something that is done fully by Christ and Christ alone, that when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And we have zero part in that whatsoever. In our sanctification, we have to realize that that is also done in the power of Christ and the power of Christ alone. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, But by His doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. We are in Christ by His power alone, but we are redeemed and sanctified and made righteous by His power alone. Look with me at uh, Ephesians chapter 6. The the chapter that talks about the the armor of God, and one of my verses, one of my favorite verses in Ephesians chapter six, is this verse that he kind of launches into this whole section with in Ephesians six ten. Paul says, "Finally, <clears throat> be strong. Well, how are we to be strong? We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So, this is the the section that." Again, launches into putting on the full armor of God. That it is his strength and his might which we are to find ourselves strong in. And you'll notice that as he goes on we see so many different commands for the believer and how we are to be responsible for um, putting on this armor. Which is a, a process of this sanctification. That we are told in verse 11 to put on the full armor of God. Verse 13 to take up the full armor of God to resist to stand firm these are things that we are to do verse 14 to stand firm to gird your loins to put on to shod your feet to take up the shield to put on the the helmet of salvation these are things that we are to do however we are to do them in his strength by his might by his power it is in his power that we are sanctified however we still have a a responsibility Unlike with justification, justification is all a work of God. Sanctification, we are working with God by his strength, by his power, that we still have a responsibility to grow and to become more and more like him, to, uh, to put off the old self and to put on the new self. We see this several times throughout Paul's writings, that we are to consciously <coughs> make an effort in becoming more and more like him and growing in our relationship to him and becoming holy even as he himself is holy and so i i hope that i don't have to really point out too uh too firmly these distinctions these differences between pride and sanctification i think we can see that they are in fact in in natural opposition to one another that uh, in many respects, sanctification is the mortification of pride. It is the, the killing, the putting to death of our own self-interest and growing in the holiness of Christ that these two, pride and sanctification, are like water and, and oil. They don't really mix. They're not meant to mix. They're not meant to, to go together. And if we hope to increase in sanctification and we must decrease in our pride, in our own self-interest, in our own God-denying uh, self-gratification they do not go together they do not work um, as, um, as one but they are opposed one to another and we have to recognize that pride comes from within ourselves, as we've already mentioned, that we deal with this pride because it is natural to what it means to be a human, that we are all walking around with this struggle of pride within ourselves. And if pride comes from within, it needs to be addressed inwardly as well. And it's very easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking that sanctification is merely just uh, seeing outward expressions of Um, our our fruit uh, outward expressions of um, our changed behavior and so we would do well to recognize that sanctification is not tied simply towards our outward acts but takes place first of all within our own hearts Uh, let's look at a couple of parables from the book of Luke starting with Luke chapter 21 We'll see a couple of examples of simply uh, outward expressions of works that don't start with a changed heart. So starting with Luke 21, the first four verses, we'll look at the widow with the two mites or two coins. It says, and he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow put in more than all of them, and they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. And she was blessed. She was recognized as as giving because she gave with a pure heart. These others uh, were not uh, praised for their giving, even though that they gave more monetarily than what she had given. Let's go back a a few chapters, back to Luke 18. Let's look at the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some of the people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he's talking to people who are putting their trust in themselves and their own works and their own righteousness. And he comes up with this parable. He says... Verse 10, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. But was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So it was this tax collector who went away justified, who was declared righteous, rather than this other Pharisee who had all these outward showings, all this... Work all this quote-unquote sanctification, right? Um, and he was unjustified for his outward acts. So sanctification is not merely tied to our outward acts. Though manifested outwardly, we cannot and must not reduce sanctification to outward behavior, which is a, a temptation for us, I think. I think we see justification as taking place inwardly and sanctification as being the, the outward flow of that. But sanctification also starts with the heart. We have to address the, the heart issue first. If we don't, then we're just dealing with uh, behavior modification, which can be a real struggle, real challenge for us as parents, especially to just correct our kids and uh, tell them to behave the proper way without addressing the heart issue. Why it is that they have to behave the proper way. If we do that, we're in, uh, we could be uh, just making moralists out of our kids, right? We don't want a bunch of moralistic kids. We want uh, believers, Christians. We have to tell them why it is that um, God has called them to do what it is that we're asking them to do. And so we need to first address the, the heart issue. And so often the, the root of the sin, which is at odds with our sanctification, is pride. Pride and sanctification, again, they don 't make They are water and oil and should be recognized as such, and there is in my opinion no greater oxymoron than uh, a proud Christian that's not how it should be we shouldn't have proud Christians that is a, an oxymoron perhaps uh, we could say that a, a hateful Christian uh, is oxymoronic because we are called as Christians to to love right they will know that we are Christians by our love, but what is hate except for a manifestation of Pride, and here I want to I want to chase a rabbit for a minute. We'll come back to this issue of pride and sanctification, but I want to talk about this tendency that we often have, even within Christianity, to oversimplify the the Christian life or to oversimplify biblical morality by saying that uh, pride is bad. Right? We've already talked about how there are positive aspects of pride, but we'll say well, pride is bad and. Uh, humility is good and hatred is bad and, and love is good, we'll oversimplify biblical morality. And instead, we need to carefully consider and evaluate not just our affections, but the objects of our affections. Generally speaking, it's a, a bad thing to say that Christians are a, a proud and hateful bunch, right? We we don't want to own that. That's not a, a good try for us to uh, hold on to. We don't want to be a proud, hateful bunch, unless, of course, we are standing with Paul, who says that he is not proud in himself. He doesn't boast in himself or in his own accomplishments, but he boasts in the cross of Christ. Well, that's good, right? We we would be okay with boasting the cross of Christ, or with saying that we hate sin. Well, that's that's a good thing, right? We'd be okay with being known as hateful in that instance, in that situation, to hate not just sin amorphously, but Uh, sin, even within our own hearts, we should hate and despise and run from sin within our own hearts. We need to avoid uh, blanket statements like, well, Christians should be loving, right? Well, yes, Christians should be loving, generally speaking, but that doesn't mean that we should love uh, lying. Should we love lying? Absolutely not, right? Should we love child abuse? No. Should we love the fact that our world is at every turn either implicitly or explicitly uh calling out our our god and uh denigrating our god and our king no we should not accept the the fact that christians should always be loving in in every situation but again we need to evaluate the object of our affections what about faith it's It's often said or portrayed that uh, it's a good thing to be a a man or a woman of faith, right? Um, However, is it a good thing if somebody has a a true and a genuine heartfelt faith in a plant? Um, That's not a good thing, right? Or if somebody has a true, genuine, heartfelt faith in Jesus, but they say, well, Jesus was just a man, right? He was just a prophet. He wasn't. God in the flesh. That He's not the, the great I am. The first and the last. Who took upon himself the sins of the world. Who was crucified, dead, and buried. And, and risen again for our justification. If somebody believes in that Jesus. That's that's not a good thing. That's not a good faith. And similar, similarly if a, a man or a woman puts their faith. Not in a plant. But in Jesus. And if Say they are even able to, to do better than plant man on a theology exam, and they're able to rel, realize and recognize Jesus as being um, born of a virgin, born under the law. And Jesus as being um, God Himself, God incarnate. If they're able to acknowledge the the crucifixion and the resurrection, but then they recite a prayer, and they're putting their trust and their faith in this prayer. And they say that uh, they can go on living their life just as they were, even as a rest, um, as children of wrath. And they have no change whatsoever in their life, um, no sanctification, no fruit. Should we praise that kind of faith in, in that man? Well, let's, let's turn to Scripture let's see what James has to say, because I think he speaks directly to that in James chapter 2 verse 14 uh, James asks a couple of questions a couple of rhetorical questions and I think the answer is a resounding no he says what use is it my brethren if someone says he has faith but he has no works can that faith save him if a man has faith alone but no sanctification no works to follow up can that kind of faith save that man and I think, again, that James is pointing out that that's not the case. That if a man has true faith in the true God of the Bible, that he will be changed by that faith, by that God who gives him that faith. Uh, going down into verse 17, it says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So if somebody just believes, but they have no works, no evidence of that, That faith is dead. Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So let's not get this twisted. Let's not get this backwards. James is not at all saying that we are saved by faith plus works. He's not saying that our sanctification needs to come before we are justified. But he is saying that our justification will in fact produce sanctification that it will produce a change within our lives. And here at this point, James isn't questioning the, the object of our faith so much, like the, the man who trusts in a plant, who has faith in a plant, but he's rather uh, questioning uh, the, the quality or the source of our faith. What is our faith in? What is the, the type of faith, the quality of that faith? And there are a a lot of people who will question the quality of faith in a a negative way, errant teachers who will say, well, you would have been healed had you had true, genuine faith, right? Or perhaps you'd be in a a better life situation, you would have a better job, you would have more money uh, if you had more faith, that God would be giving you what you want if you had more faith, And really this kind of approach is in itself a a manifestation of pride. First, for the person who would suggest that he has achieved that kind of position where he can say, I am in this position because of my faith that I have had. And then secondly, to uh, take and put that kind of expectation on somebody else saying, you guys need to have that kind of faith in order for God to do what you want him to do in your life. But Uh, James isn't questioning the quality of their faith in in this type of way at all. What James is doing is he is questioning whether or not uh, they have been saved in the first place, whether or not they have been justified to begin with. We don't um, need a a true, genuine, heartfelt faith. But what we need is a true, genuine, heart-changing faith. And that's exactly what James is uh, proposing, that we have this faith that isn't stirred up, from within ourselves but this faith that is given to us from God and if it is given to us from God then it should be a faith that works he says you show me your faith by without your works and I will show you my faith by my works that the works are a testimony or a witness to the faith that uh, a believer has that sanctification is uh, a means by which somebody can look and say that person is in Christ if we don't have a, a faith that sanctifies. If we don't have a faith that works out, then we don't have a faith that justifies. That's exactly what uh, James seems to be getting at. And so it's important to realize that um, we are not justified by faith plus works, but we are justified by a faith that does indeed work. And this is often illustrated with a, a simple equation. We can throw it up here on the screen which says that faith equals salvation plus works. That if we have true faith, then we will have salvation and that salvation will result in works. Or to use the, this, this terminology is consistent with what James is talking about in the book of James, James two. But to use terminology that's consistent with the, the verbiage that we've been using, we could say that faith equals justification plus sanctification. That our faith will lead to justification, and that the natural result of that will be sanctification. Again, if we don't have a faith that sanctifies, we don't have a faith that justifies. Now, if we take and uh, misunderstand this, if this uh, equation is confused, then it results in the epitome of pride if we take we say for example that faith equals salvation minus works which a lot of people have done we talked about this morning in Sunday school uh, antinomianism that would fall within this camp those who say that faith equals salvation minus works that is really to deny the the work of god it is to deny his regenerative work the fact that he has given us a new heart that he will that he has said that he will take us and transfer us from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. that's not just uh, a reality in eternity but that begins at the point of justification that we will be changed and he will work on us in philippians 1 6 he says that paul says that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of christ jesus not at the day of christ jesus but until that day he will uh perfect the work that he is doing within us or what about what Jude says let's look at Jude uh, verse 4 Jude says for certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons that's that's pretty bad right to be called ungodly persons what did they do to be called ungodly It says that these ungodly persons were those who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and our Lord Jesus. They say that this grace that God has given us then can be taken and used as license to sin, as an excuse for us to go on and live our lives however we want without uh, an evidence of a changed heart or a changed life within us. Now, Let's look at uh, another misunderstanding of this equation. Those who say that faith equals salvation minus works, that is definitely bad, right? And Jude identified them as um, ungodly persons who deny our master and Lord. However, I think there are people who can fall within that category and still hold to, um, they can still be found within Christianity. But this next group, those who say that faith plus works equals salvation, that is absolutely not, the the gospel of the Bible. That is a a different gospel altogether. To say that we um, are justified by our faith plus our sanctification or our faith plus our works is to add to the gospel, to pervert the gospel so entirely as to uh, make it a a different gospel, a, a condemning gospel, a gospel that cannot save. That is to deny the finished work of Christ, what he Accomplished on the cross when he said it is finished, and it is to take and to add our own works, our own efforts to what Christ has done, to lay claim to our own salvation, and to say that Jesus was unable to accomplish something on the cross that we ourselves were able to take and add to that that will result in our justification. So, faith plus. Works equals salvation is a a damnable heresy that we need to uh, reject. But we do need to realize that our faith um, results in salvation and um, works that will accompany that salvation. True sanctification, again, will produce fruit only by cultivating the root. We need to first address the heart issue before we can hope to address uh, any of the the fruit that we see afterwards and while again sanctification and pride are naturally opposed to one another they they aren't meant to go together uh, we still see them working together in in reality in our practical life we still are left with Romans chapter seven where Paul says what a wretched man that I am and he says i, I do what I don't want to do and that which i don't want to do i'm 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 found doing he's struggling with pride and sanctification how these work together in his own life he goes on in in Romans 8 verses 12 and 13 he says so then brethren we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you are living according to the flesh you must die but by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live he speaks of putting to death it's something that's Uh, an ongoing process something that is actively being done and by doing so uh he finds life this is speaking to this ongoing process of sanctification in the midst of the the pride and the sin that remains because of his sinful flesh that he has carried with him into this new life this new creation that god has made him into we see this unnatural overlapping of pride in sanctification and this is to be expected um, even though pride and, and sanctification are opposed to one another, we have to realize that uh, our our pride, our sin, is not going to be fully eradicated in this life. We are still going to live with it. We are still going to struggle with it, uh, despite the fact that we might be growing in sanctification, that we might be becoming more and more holy, even as Christ himself is holy. And uh, this crazy again oxymoron is that we can be proud even in our sanctification and the fact that we are becoming more and more like Christ we can find ourselves being proud of that fact that we are being changed from glory to glory that we are becoming more and more like him we can look at our lives and say well you know what I'm I'm doing pretty well at this sanctification thing I think I'm doing a, a good job uh, I've gone to church three weeks in a row and I haven't cursed since Thursday and I haven't kicked the cat in a week. I'm doing all right. Uh, And then you look at your wife and say, well, she's not doing all right. She kicked the cat across the front yard this morning, right? Um, We can find ourselves being proud of the fact that God has been working in us the way that he's been working in us, and that can lead to uh, sinful ends, uh, despite the fact that there's Uh, a natural opposition to these things they often unnaturally overlap. And we would do well to recognize that while anybody who is in Christ, anybody who has been justified has been justified 100%. If you are in Christ that's it. Nobody can take you out of the hand of God. Nobody can take you out of the hand of Christ. However, nobody has been sanctified 100%. It is a process that we are all working through. We need to remember that. We need to give grace to one another. Um, realizing that God does not work equally in each one, that he is working in us differently at different rates, that he sanctifies us uniquely, not at a constant rate. And because of that, we shouldn't hold our own man-made expectations over other people who might be sanctified at a a slower rate. We shouldn't be jealous or proud um, looking at those who are more sanctified and um, desiring that for ourselves. There's a, a constant threat of finding ourselves being proud even in the midst of being sanctified. Rather, we should desire to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That should be our hope. That should be our desire as Christians to lift up one another, to encourage one another, to be patient and gracious as we are seeking the same goal to be sanctified together in Christ. And if we realize that Christ is head over all, that should give us a a good starting point to realize that we are all in subjection under him. All rulers and authorities and powers, uh, you and I, are in subjection under Christ. He is the head. We are all under him, all uh, inferior to Christ. And we're going to have several opportunities to look at how pride is manifested in how pride is combated and remedied over the next several weeks as we look at pride in different areas of life, as we look at pride in our parenting, uh, in our marriages, that'll hurt, right? As we look at pride in the church and pride in the workplace, um, it's not always easy to look at our own pride and to examine ourselves in light of Scripture, but it's a good and healthy thing for us to do. And For now, we would do well uh, to recognize that we should be working on mortifying our pride rather than conceding to it yes pride is going to continue in our lives it's going to be a constant struggle for each one of us but we shouldn't uh, concede defeat rather we should be uh, looking to be sanctified as we are mortifying that pride within us by the power and the work of the holy spirit he is the one who is working within us convicting us of sin including our pride Uh, we need to yield to him submit to him grow in him and to become holy even as he is holy having the same attitude in us that was in christ jesus just like we read about in philippians 2 um, seeking to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling but knowing that it is god who works within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure let's pray god we thank you for our justification for the fact that you have saved us from our sin that you have taken us and made us your own we thank you that that process involves a, a regenerating work within us that that you are doing a, a work within us a sanctifying work within us that you are conforming us into yourself making us more and more like you every day we pray that you would give us uh, strength in, in doing that. That You would help us to resist our flesh, to resist the world, to resist the devil, to stand firm against him by your strength and your power. And God, we pray that you would uh, mortify the pride within us, help us to, to kill that pride, help us to have love for one another, that we would consider others as more important than ourselves, that we would hold on to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, we thank you for your love, your grace, for what you've done in us, what you will continue to do in us. We thank you that our salvation is by your work alone. We pray that you would uh, keep us from any false, errant idea that we can add anything to our salvation. God, help us to preach that message boldly and proudly and loudly to the world that uh, we are who we are because of you and because of you alone. God, help us to uh, model this this week that we would be Humble that we would uh, seek to honor you by being holy, even as you are holy. Praise in your name. Amen.